physical location was a different audio submix in that thing. So I ended up with f- probably like 40 audio submixes in the whole thing feeding into the main. It was a bit complicated, but I found that um, DaVinci was a good tool for letting me do that um, in the NLE, in, in the editor. Yeah. So you didn't have to go to a separate program for round tripping. And that was a big deal to me. I wanted to keep the whole thing fluid because I, the way I think about it, the editing and whatnot it's very non-linear and I, I would just look at something and go okay maybe i can work on this audio track a little bit maybe i can work on the color for this clip a little bit and um having the entire thing accessible in, in davinci like that was mm-hmm. um was really empowering because uh, i didn't have to go to picture lock and then send it to an audio person or you know send it to the colorist and then have you know certain clips come back color graded I could literally go back and edit anything at any time. So and where just... did you pick up that skill, though? Because, like, I mean, from your background, like, where did the video editing part come from? Um, well, I was very interested in audio. Going yeah. back to when I was um, in high school, I learned how to uh, to work with MIDI when it was still fairly primitive because I wanted to write some music and then um, hear how different things would sound. Um, I, I wrote things like drum cadences because I wanted to write precise rhythms and have the other drum section hear how all the things fit together so i was like leading the drum section in in my high school band and then it went on to other types of composition and from there i learned how to use uh, adobe premiere for video editing but back when it was very very basic yeah so it's something you've been working on a long time Uh, yeah Yeah. going back to the 90s so it's all new to me i gradually picked it up and um when i was um when i was in iraq in 2006 uh, a dear friend of mine uh, was quite an experienced photographer, an, an amateur, but quite experienced. And he knew how to repair cameras as well. And he encouraged me to buy a professional camera. Mm-hmm. And then later he taught me how to use vintage cameras, um, most notably Leicas and Roliflex cameras. And I fell in love with those vintage cameras. I mean, you, you can tell I'm wearing a right. shirt with a vintage Hasselblad on it. And um, he taught me not only how to shoot on those cameras, 35 mil and medium format, but also how to repair the cameras how, how to maintain them so i was able to buy uh you know quote unquote broken cameras and fix them up they so. really just needed a little tlc a little bit of cleaning and mm-hmm. oil in the right place and i ended up with some very beautiful uh cameras over the years after you know repairing a few hundred of them and then reselling them on ebay so that kind of um you know helped me to fall in love with photography and and get a sense of the history of how uh cameras and lenses developed and um then somewhere along the line, I think 2007, um, I was actually approached by a, an, an, award-winning film, an award-winning filmmaker. Let me say that again. <laughs> in 2007, when yeah. I was working in Iraq, I was approached by Alex Gibney uh, about a film he had coming out called yeah. Taxi to the Dark Side. Uh, I was working in Iraq, and he wanted me to, um, to show that film to some of the senior military and diplomatic personnel at the State Department. So I invited the ambassador and General Petraeus and some other people to come take a look at the film, and, and they sent delegates to watch it for them. And mm-hmm. it turns out that the film was very influential. Um, the military listened, the State Department listened, and U.S. policy was changed to try to make, um, uh, make sure that the mistakes that happened in that film were not repeated basically um, an afghan citizen was just a taxi driver but he got uh caught up and detained by american troops and then he was beaten to death in prison so 
uh, anyway, Gibney's film went on to win the Oscar for Best Documentary that year, and then a year later, um, uh, I, I met um, the award-winning filmmaker Jenny Livingston. Just by chance, she was looking for a room to rent, yeah. and she met me on Craigslist. So <laughs> we ended up um, uh, sharing a, a, a condo together in New Haven when she was a visiting professor, and um, between my acquaintance with Alex Gibney and Jenny Livingston, I I was pretty inspired by the uh, idea of an independent filmmaker kind of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and, and making a movie. Uh, Jenny in particular, she had a very small team, and she made Paris is Burning, which won the Sundance Grand Jury Prize. And um, I think those two people were, were inspirations for me. And at that point, I, I knew how to shoot still cameras. Yeah. Um, I, I, around that time, I won an award for still photography and just decided to take it to the next level to see what I could do. But uh, like a lot of things in life, um, you know, an, an artist has to think about what what can you do, right? You can't just go out and make a movie on anything you want. Right. You've got to worry about budget, and, and that's usually the biggest limitation. How, how do you hire people? How do you get to the places to shoot? Um, with me, it was more like... I was I was working as a sailor to make ends meet and I came across something really interesting. Um, my son and my ex-girlfriend were living in Boston and the apartments there were $4,500 a month for a two-bedroom place. Yeah. And I said, there's no way I can afford that. But I realized that uh, there were people who lived on boats around the country and I'd heard about these people. So... I started looking into what would it actually take to buy a vintage boat and restore it. And boats are not like houses. Houses go up in value. They're sitting on real estate. Right. It always goes up over time. Uh, a boat just basically goes down and down and down in value, especially if it's not maintained. So, so similar to like a car. Like once you drive it off the lot, it's, it's Yeah, but worth, it's even worse. Like yeah. it's just going to keep dropping. Like some vintage cars will go up in value. Yeah. But that never happens with a boat. It's, oh, okay. It's always just going to drop. And I started looking at boats from like the 70s and 80s, thinking that I'll buy some, you know, cabin cruiser, small motor yacht, yep. and then restore it. And um, I realized that this was something that I could do because as a professional sailor, I was working as a, a marine engineer mm -hmm. and as a, a mate on ships, so navigating. Yeah. I realized that this is something I actually could understand how to do. And when you don't have to pay other people to do the work on a boat, it's actually pretty affordable yeah if you can do the work yourself if you have to pay somebody to do the work for you if you're not a hands-on person then stand by and be prepared to pay two to three times what you would expect to pay for that repair on land because putting the word marine in front of any sort of technical advice mm -hmm. doubles the price at yeah. least so um you know for me um i had the know-how already from from working on ships cargo ships research ships and I realized that I could actually afford to live in downtown Boston if I got myself an old boat and restored it. So I started looking around, um, and I had been sailing on the Great Lakes for a few years at that point on cargo ships there, moving coal and steel around. And that seemed like an interesting place to look because the Great Lakes are freshwater. 
Yeah. And Freshwater is very kind to all the metals. So oh, I see. I was yeah. driving. Yeah, I was driving around on these vintage lake freighters that were 50, 60 years old. Yeah. Uh, one of them was even the sister ship for the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh the, wow. The, the Arthur yeah. Anderson. So I literally, you know, sailed her sister ship around the lakes, and, and those those ships were such. They were in such amazing condition that um, I said to myself, "Well, I bet I could find you know a good vintage boat up there." Yeah. And all I need to do is find somebody who you know knew how to winterize it, took good care of it, and I bet it's going to be great. And sure enough, I found this boat that was owned by a man who was almost 90 years old at the time. Uh, his kids didn't want it. They were in their 60s and 70s. And, um, you know, he, um, he sold it to me when I told him that I wanted to restore it and uh, that I had been, you know, a-, a sailor aboard many of the ships. This man also happened to own a shipyard. Mm-hmm. And it was a big shipyard. They they took thousand foot vessels into dry dock. So we're oh, talking about a really wow. big shipyard. Yeah. And he knew how to take care of boats. So when I saw that, um, I literally bought the boat sight unseen. And you know when, when I learned that he was an owner of a shipyard, I bought the boat sight unseen. And it turned out to be in better condition than what I expected. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 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 And it it seems like in the past decade or so, there's been like a whole like movement for like tiny houses and all that and this is like a weird subsection of that because watching the movie it was more like it wasn't just people like downsizing it it was like these and it just like they, these people would be like oh yeah this is the time that like i almost died in sailing and <laughs> yeah. you're like i've never had a house that could cause my i mean of course that you know the house could collapse or something crazy but like they're is yeah it, there's so, something like romantic and like right there's there's a lot to unpack there I yeah mean, so first of all boats are the original tiny houses yeah um all of those innovations that you see talked about on the tiny house shows those those kinds of things like you can look over here my, my sofa's got drawers built in underneath this it's beautiful mahogany wood that's original there are cabinets everywhere. Every square inch of space is used on this, and mm-hmm. it's used effectively. Um, there are cup holders built into the dinette that's right next to us, yep. and they're holding these you know, 1960s vintage glasses that I got. But um, every bit of space is has a purpose on a boat, and I think that um, long predates the tiny house movement. And... When I saw the tiny house thing and thought about living on a boat, I realized, yeah, these things are, they are very similar. Yeah. But the difference between, um, you know, a tiny house or van life, which is another popular thing people have been talking about lately, um, the difference between those and living on a boat is that you're in an incredibly beautiful place all the time when you're living on a boat. I have this incredible waterfront view wherever I go, and you know, just being able to move up and down the coast, that kind of cruising, um, there's a certain elegance about it that is, um, you know, maybe it's there if you're, if you're taking your van to national parks or other beautiful places, but you can't stay and live in a national park. Yeah. You're going to have nights where you're sleeping in Walmart parking lots. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Like one of the guys I interviewed, the gentleman from Hawaii, uh, he was saying that he he had lived van life for a while, but he got a little bit tired of police harassing him Mm -hmm. about why are you living in an ambulance that's been converted into an apartment? Right. And, um, he he was basically pushed around all over the West Coast before he said, screw it, I'm getting a boat. And since then, he's been living in Hawaii kind of unofficially because the marina he's at doesn't officially allow liveaboards. But yep. he's sort of been you know getting by there and just loving his life. Um, so 
I guess to answer your question, it it, it seems like the liveaboard lifestyle is um, it's not a compromise on the size of the the living space when you're li- you're putting yourself in this environment that is incredibly beautiful and expansive. I can walk out on deck and I've got an incredible view mm-hmm. of right now we're in Plymouth Harbor and wherever I drive the boat, I've got this direct waterfront access to some of the nicest places in the country and and it's like that everywhere you go. The waterfronts are all well developed. Uh, this is where people like to live because it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even some of the footage you shot from, like, the freighter, I'm like, that's a fucking beautiful sunset, and he's <laughs> on, like, this freighter hauling coal or something, you know? Yeah. And it, it's... It, it's... You see some amazing things out there, like the sunsets by um, Catalina Island there, I think is what ones you're referring to, um, and there were also some that I shot in South Korea um, on, on the way back home. But... Um, there are other things that you see that no one will ever see on land. For example, have you heard of Fata Morgana? No. So Fata Morgana is a, an optical property of the sky. When the sky's temperature differences literally create a lens in the air, and it reflects things that are over the horizon and projects them in the sky. So, oh wow, what it looks like? This is crazy. And, yeah. and Fata Morgana means uh, Morgan Le Fay, like the wizard, like King Arthur's sister, Morgan right. Le Fay. So sailors used to say that it was Morgan Le Fay trying to tempt them to her island. Yeah. And what you actually see is cities upside down in the sky. Oh, that's weird. Floating over the horizon, and and it's just this optical trick yeah. caused by temperature differences. Um, I've seen it twice so far, um, both on, on Lake Superior, actually, when I was heading east uh, to the Sulaks. I've seen it where uh, a little village in upper Michigan would just appear upside down in the sky over the horizon. And, you know, when you see that thing, like, that kind of thing, it's like, what is going on? Like, yeah. It, um, and you just have to have to take it all in in, in wonderment because when you get out and explore nature like this and you see this the beauty of the natural world there there's so many things that are just simply awesome and it will it will it will it will um <laughs> it'll leave you speechless yeah i that's that sounds amazing and like the the one thing from the movie that i i made me laugh was the guy that said um he's talking about how it felt like someone came aboard a ship one night yeah and he got like freaked out and it took him like two or three nights to find out that it was just like a harbor seal had like climbed aboard his you know and like you'd be so close to that and yeah that was um that's fred fellman he's the president of the port commission in seattle Mm -hmm. and he's a great guy i was really happy that he gave me so much time and and um knowledge from that interview because uh fred was not somebody who decided to live aboard deliberately it was a situation where um he and his wife were splitting up she got yep. the house he got, he got the, boat. the boat yeah so there he was um living aboard and the people in that community at Shilshol marina um there's 700 live aboards there and they liked fred a lot fred was politically minded yeah and they said you know what um we're gonna get together and vote this guy into office so, you know, there are not that many people who are going to get mobilized to vote for most 
smaller offices like port commissioner or local district attorney or something like that. Yeah. You know, but but Fred actually had a very solid core of people from the Liveaboard community who said, we like this guy and we want to make sure that he's representing our interests. And I would say that that early interview with Fred was also one of the most surprising revelations about my whole you know, experience with the film. Um, Fred said that uh, you don't live aboard because you're rich. If you own a house... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah like if yeah. you own a house up on the hill and you have a boat as a toy, mm-hmm. now that's rich. But for most people, um, Fred explained that, um, especially in Seattle where, where rental prices are going through the roof, he explained that um, living aboard is kind of a, an alternative way of having low-income housing. And he saw it as a, his responsibility as a poor commissioner to try to explain that to the other people on the commission and to protect it. He said that um, billion-dollar corporations, you know, multi-billion-dollar corporations were approaching all the time wanting to buy up real estate on Seattle's waterfront. And he said, no, you, you can't do that. You have to respect these communities that are living here. We can't just turn this into a haven for, for your super yacht, for your tech company. Right. Um, yeah, and... and um uh, Cape Cod, they're having big issues. I mean, that's almost all waterfront on Cape Cod. Yeah. And they're pricing out their workforce. Right. You know? And and people can't, you know, working class people can't afford to live on the Cape Cod anymore. Right. And they're not willing to drive into Cape traffic during the summer. So it's like, well, who's going to run your restaurants? Who's going to, yeah. you know, clean your hotels? And it becomes like this, like, whole thing. that And, like, this kind of, you know... I, I'm like, you know, well, there should be, like, little tiny house developments, but, I mean, they're kind of already here. They're marinas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think when... So, right now, I feel like uh, the live-aboard lifestyle is is one of the best-kept secrets in American um, housing, if you think about it as a, a low-income housing kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not all low-income. You can, you oh, can sure. have a multi-million-dollar yeah. boat. The boat over there probably cost a million and a half when it was new. Yeah. Some of these boats around here were 3 or $4 million uh, just looking out. So it's actually um, a very income-diverse community. But the fact is you can get in the door with a boat that passes inspection. They call it a survey. You have to go through a marine survey, which is a very formal inspection. They pull the boat out of the water, and they make sure that things are safe. They do a few tests on electrical systems, whatnot. So... If you pass a survey and you get insurance with a certain minimum liability, then you're permitted to stay in a marina as a liveaboard. Most marinas require, you know, at least half a million dollars in liability coverage. So yeah. this is not like the people that the New Yorker showed in their documentary a couple months ago where um, these folks were squatting on free boats that they got on Craigslist and they were squatting in a 72-hour anchorage, which is public land. Yeah, That's actually unsafe and it's illegal and it doesn't really show any respect. They were pumping their waste into the water. That doesn't show respect for the environment. The liveaboard community is highly regulated. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of hoops that we have to jump through in order to be able to live here. But I think that the people who want to live aboard uh, the people who want to live aboard a boat are actually well suited to meeting those requirements because they know how to take responsibility for a home that mm-hmm. as you actually pointed out might actually sink yeah i mean it, it's <laughs> they know how to manage the risk and yeah. those kinds of people they know how to go through the process of fixing up a boat to the point where it's safe getting it to pass a marine survey getting an insurance company to back them 
and then going through the process of actually finding a slip. Um, most places in the country, you can't own a slip. There's very few waterfront slips. There, there are very few waterfront slips that are available for sale. Yeah. Um, Baltimore is an exception. There are a couple places where you can buy there. Um, if you try to buy a slip in Florida, good luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're all taken. Um, you'd be really lucky to find anything. Um, there are a couple in Connecticut that I've seen at private yacht clubs. Um, and um, it's funny, even the word like yacht club, uh, it has a very different meaning for me now. I used to think that a yacht club was a really hoity-toity kind of thing that was just for basically rich white guys. Yeah. But that's not the case at all. Really? Because um, I would... You can buy into a membership at a yacht club and own a slip there or, or rent a slip long term and be a very working class person who just takes good care of their boat. Like if you're the kind of guy or gal who knows how to take care of a vintage car, you can buy a vintage boat and take good care of it well enough to get insured and to, you know, to meet all the requirements. And it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Is there... Like you said, we're next to boats that are, you know, a couple million or whatever. Is, yeah. Is, and that's probably someone's weekend toy. Like, M- maybe. They're, they're yeah. probably not a liveaboard. Live I haven't seen them out here, yeah. you know, driving it, it around. Just, is there, like, I don't want to say hostility, but is there any animosity between, you know, the rich people with their toys and the, the liveaboard community? Uh, no, I think it's actually quite the opposite. Some folks in New Orleans, I asked this question of some of the folks in New Orleans who I interviewed, and they said that the, um, you know the rich guys with the three and four million dollar boats next door to them, and the next pier over, they're really happy to have liveaboards who are there with eyes on the the water the whole time. Um, just this morning, we had a gale blow through where the winds were forty to fifty miles per hour mm-hmm. with the gusts, and it's nice to know that there's somebody who's actually, you know, experienced in in marine life, living right there and we can you know when every time i walk down the pier to go up to the boathouse or to go into town i can see if somebody's lines are coming loose and fix it or i can see if somebody's bilge pump is running and there's water getting pumped over and say hey you know call the dock master maybe this guy's got a leak somewhere and the boat's slowly sinking yeah um or you know worst case scenario if there's a fire i would be able to be the eyes and ears on the dock and actually cut that boat loose um we could, oh i wouldn't even think that was the thing to do i'm like yeah. i would call 911 but it, i suppose yeah no so you actually have to take so calling 911 is actually the the first thing get the yeah. fire department involved but you take action at that point so we're, we're people of action and that's something that really separates um liveaboards from a lot of other folks who don't really have ownership of their situation we have to take ownership of the situation because um the responsibilities can be life or death. Mm-hmm. If it's no joke when you go out and drive a boat on the ocean, yeah, it's no joke. Um, you could actually die, and if you don't take care of things like a leak in the hull, your boat could actually sink, and you can lose everything in your home. So you have to be able to take responsibility. And when there's a fire, um, the responsibilities would involve calling the authorities to get help, mm-hmm. followed by. Um, if you can, you know, assessing the situation, if you can put it out with an extinguisher, you'll notice there's an extinguisher right next to you. Yep. There's one over there. There's another one in the next there, cabin. There's a few on the dock one on the way deck. in. Yeah. They're all over. We have extinguishers everywhere, and it's required by the Coast Guard. So um, 
we 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 have to assess can we put out the fire or is this something where we need to cut the boat loose so that it doesn't burn down every other boat that's on the pier right and that's kind of important to do to be able to have someone there to make that decision because you have to do it fast yeah that's i wouldn't even think of that that's crazy yeah and and the idea of cutting it loose like that wasn't obvious to me either on a ship i'm trained to fight the fire we have you know full because you're on it yeah in the middle of the ocean (laughs) yeah if this thing's going down you're in the middle of the pacific you're it might be a week before you get help so um yeah we um we're trained to fight fires with the full, you know, firefighting gear and, you know, big pressurized hoses and all sorts of different equipment, specialized equipment for different things. Um, but in a marina, it's it's totally different. It's just, you know, protect the community. Yeah. And I think they're like that in a lot of ways. Um, you know, protecting the community from fire, protecting it from um, environmental damage. We're very careful about not putting oil over the side, for example, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Not putting waste over the side. Yeah, that yeah they were talking about that in the movie how like yeah that's implied and they use the term squatters for liveaboards and that's not the same thing. Uh, yeah, we're definitely not like the people who are living the legitimate liveaboard lifestyle are definitely not squatters. We pay rent. Yeah, we we have high level of regulation. Like I said, you know we have to pass a survey for safety and suitability. We have to uh, adhere to local laws for pumping our our waste out because you know you flush a toilet on a boat. It doesn't go overboard. Right. It goes into a holding tank, and sometimes it's processed. But that stuff has to get pumped out and then taken care of in a, you know, in, in a professional way that's sanitary. We do not pollute. Yeah. And the liveaboard community really takes offense when people think that they pollute because, generally speaking, I think these are people who love nature. And it, and, and, and like you said, it's like you live in this perfect waterfront vista all the time. Yeah, right. Why would you want to? pump your waist into it yeah like that we, just makes I don't no sense I, I when i go out and have a cocktail and watch the sunset i don't i don't want to see, see somebody's poop floating <laughs> by, you know you know it, it's like i i i don't know if i'm a liveaboard person but like i look at this space and i'm product of a divorce and you know i had my first divorce dad studio apartment when uh i, I first separated with my ex-wife and it was not a pleasant place to be you know it was tiny it was i I think it, this space is bigger, honestly. And it's like, it, you know, there were... The building was basically people who were down on their luck mostly for their own reasons mm. and divorced ads, you know? So there was like, yeah. you know, people were addicted to drugs and it wasn't a great place to be. And like, I'm looking at this yeah. now and being like, God damn, this well, is... The, the thing about it is that like if you measure the square footage on this boat, and this is a fairly decent sized boat, it's forty two feet and thirteen foot beam. That's how how wide it is, the beam. Um, if you just measure the square footage on there, it's like less than four hundred square feet of space where you can actually walk or sit. But like I mentioned before, every square inch is designed with a purpose. Yeah. And it feels much more open than that because when I look out in every direction, I've got a fantastic view. There's just incredible natural light. Mm-hmm. Um, and you basically have a giant deck you know, yeah, that you can I, go hang out on. And I have a giant deck. And then here's the other thing. Um, when you live in a, a marina, in a community of other boaters, mm-hmm. it's not just your living space that matters. There's amenities up at the marina. Like this marina here, 
Um, we're at a safe harbor in Plymouth, which is a, a very nice marina. Um, by the way, um, the Koch brothers own all the safe harbors. They, they started buying up marinas around the country As years in ago. Coca-Cola? No, no, no. <laughs> K-O-C-H. Okay. Uh, the, the one... One of them passed away, I think, but um, the Koch brothers started buying up the marinas a few years ago, and they own probably half the marinas in the U.S. right oh, now. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, they put billions into it before the pandemic. And, you know, I, I don't think that... I'm not sure what their policy is going to be toward liveaboards, but I get the sense that they're not that liveaboard friendly. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would hope that they reconsider um, and and make themselves amenable to liveaboards because... Um, and I, and I want to I want to qualify that liveaboards with um, a balanced sense of rights and responsibilities. Yeah, I think um, that's an important part of understanding the liveaboard lifestyle is that w- people in this community feel that um, they have a right to live in this way that's different from from living in a house, a box style apartment, or whatever a home. But they also have a sense of responsibility for. You know the community for looking out for other people's boats, mm-hmm. for taking care of the environment, um, and I think that's a meaningful part of it. If you if you consider liveaboards as people who have rights and responsibilities, then it's a lot easier to see how they fit into a marina's mix of people who are transient boaters, people who are seasonal boaters, uh, who rent the slip for a season, and people who are annual uh, who keep their boats there all year round. Yeah. So, there are really four different communities there, you know, for the cruisers who are coming through on transients and, and the other groups that I just mentioned. Um, and, and I think they actually play really well together if it's clear what the expectations are. So I don't foresee Plymouth being a, it's taken me a minute to be realize that like, I'm not dizzy. The, the, the building's moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like we're, what's we're going on? Yeah, bit, yeah. 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 Um, but uh, Plymouth, I'm assuming, isn't a year-round live-aboard community. No, no. So are there... They're hauling all these boats out. When, you know, in a few more weeks, there won't be any boats in the water here, and they shut down. And part of that is the geography. It gets damn cold in Massachusetts. Yeah, it does. And this harbor has a good chance of freezing over. So yeah. I mean, really... it's November, and it's already 75 degrees. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, so, yeah, t- today's kind of an aberration. Like, it, we're, we just got some um, warm weather from Hurricane Nicole coming north, and that's where that gale came from. It yeah. was a tropical depression over land, and it turned into a gale here. Um, but but those hurricanes have a lot of, like, they're fed by warm water, and, and that's why it's so hot unusually hot tomorrow it's probably going to be 40 degrees yeah um when i'm sailing south but um yeah so for the most part though in plymouth um and other parts like you know further further north too they will shut down most marinas for the the winter season um i was living at constitution marina in downtown boston which is right at the um the outlet of the charles mm-hmm. um and that's actually a great liveaboard marina. It's I, one of my favorite in the country. It's a really beautifully run marina. Um, great community. There are probably close to 100 people who live aboard their boats there. It's um, a relatively large community uh, for liveaboard standards. And, um, yeah, once in a while the harbor does freeze over, but there are ways that people can protect against that. They have things called bubblers that... Um, they agitate the water with these oh, little underwater fans yeah. and it sort of prevents it from freezing over. And the water's brackish, so it doesn't freeze at 32 degrees. It, yeah. It's maybe, you know, 29 or something like that. So it really has to get cold out 
for it to uh, to freeze over in these harbors. But um, you know, we're we're in New England, so it's not the most liveaboard friendly. Now, as you notice from the movie, most of the people I interviewed were a little Hawaii, bit further New Orleans, south, or, yeah, 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 like yeah. Pacific Northwest. Yeah. One thing that surprised me was um, the gentleman I interviewed in Alaska, Jamie Lyons, who's yep. a, he was a marine biologist. Now he's a boat captain. Um, and he claimed it didn't get very cold in Alaska. Well, he said at sea level. At sea now, level, yeah. <laughs> if, if you remember those, if you remember those clips that I showed, though, from that particular part, um, you could see the Kenai fjords and Prince William Sound, which were, you know, beautiful at sea level. Yeah. But the mountains in the background had snow halfway up, and that's what he liked about it was the fact that he could go from uh, Pacific Northwest weather. You know, which was maybe five or ten degrees colder than Seattle mm-hmm. in the winter time, and he could just hike up the mountains to go to do his backcountry snowboarding. Yeah, um, he was a big winter sports fan, so that was something that really caught me off guard. Alaska is a beautiful place. If you haven't been, go go in the summertime. Um, you know, at first, so that you're not traumatized by frostbite or whatnot. But yeah. <laughs> um, but like Jamie said, at sea level, it rarely gets below 32 degrees, which which was really a shock to me. Yeah, I, I was a little unbelieving. <laughs> kind yeah. of be like, is he just used to it, or is it really like that? Yeah, I think he's. I think there's yeah. a lot of truthiness to it. Yeah. You know? So are there unwritten rules amongst the liveaboard community that are kind of like, I don't say industry standards, but just kind of like, rules that everyone lives by the jeep wave or you know like is there something that liveaboards all kind of like if you run into another liveaboard do you you know pass you know like oh here's a bottle of something that i got here like is there some sort of well i can tell you that um i don't know if dur- I dur- that. in the last few years um so many people have been divided by uh political differences Mm-hmm. And social media has exacerbated that sure. in many ways. Yep. Um, what I can say about the liveaboard community is that people across political lines are still very close. Oh, they are okay. happy to invite each other over for drinks. Um, w- we might politely ask each other about, you know, why do you like this aspect of something political? Or, or there might be some polite political conversation. But for the most part, we are overwhelmingly united by the fact that we have a very unusual lifestyle and we respect each other's advice and opinions and help uh, liveaboards i guess the the biggest unwritten rule of liveaboard community is when somebody's got a problem whether it's a technical problem or uh, they have questions about how to navigate something the community is there for you that's the unwritten rule: is that we stick out, uh, you know, we stick our necks out for each other and and look out for each other to make sure that um, that things are taken care of, and that we look out for each other's boats and we look out for each other um, in terms of our mental health and our well-being. Yeah, you know, we we don't leave somebody out there hanging uh, with a you know a, t- a problem that that they can't fix. If their toilet doesn't flush, somebody's going to be over there with a wrench to help them figure out what it is. Is there a lot of um, it? It's, it seems like it can be very isolating. Like there were a lot of couples that lived together on, on, yeah. on the boats, um, but there was the one guy who said, um, 
he used his boat to kind of like isolate himself after 9-11 right and, yeah um which you know everyone has their own way of dealing with things but there are people that that's that's a really bad thing to do is to isolate yourself is there are, are there kind of i guess liveaboard hermits that are trying to get away from people and just well yeah so the person you're talking about is mark nicholas who is a fantastic guy. He wrote a he great, wrote a book, right? He wrote yeah. a great book yeah. called uh, "The Essentials of Living Aboard a Boat," and that's available on Amazon. I read several books um, related to cruising and, and boating, and that that one stood out as being very useful. So Mark was a lawyer by education, but he ended up um, running a photography studio out in L.A. and um, he's a really interesting guy. His um, his story about taking his boat out of Boston after 9-11 was really an interesting perspective on what a boat can mean for someone emotionally. Mark said that after 9-11, he took his boat out outside of the Boston Harbor Islands and dropped anchor, mm-hmm. and he just waited. And he he let everything sink in. He didn't listen to the radio. He didn't call anyone. He just let everything sink in. And he had offices in... The, the twin towers like yes. it was close to home for him mark yeah. mark as a lawyer had an office in one of the twin towers and he could have been up there, there. Yeah. when it happened he knew people who were killed so this was a very heavy loss for him and i think the boat as he said it gave him the ability to um to hide and it gave him the ability to process things on his own time scale with um without the distraction of all of the other things that we have in our daily lives and i think that kind of ability to isolate and process things emotionally is very difficult to find in other places one might be able to go to a you know a national park or something for a well, while or drive that, that was going to say like a lot of times when i'm you know in the that excuse me that headspace i'll come down to the the yeah. shore here i'll walk the yeah. jetty or i go into the woods but, 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 but like still you've got to go back and face the next day you're at work again right. and so the boat is different because and I, and I experienced this myself when i first brought my boat across country i had been restoring the boat in on the border of uh, minnesota and wisconsin for i don't know two and a half years it took a it took a lot longer than were you living in the boat at that time so i was working on ships for at least half the year, maybe yeah. seven months. Then I would do a month of training in Fort Lauderdale to upgrade my license. And then every bit of spare time that I had left over, I was on this boat, which was still sitting on blocks yeah. next to this guy's barn, right? And they, uh, we had a, a rental agreement where I was giving him a couple hundred bucks a month to keep the boat there. And he was very kind to let me use his tools from his construction company to, you know, to work on the restoration. So we had a very nice agreement. And he, his, fanta- his family is fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Benish family, they're just amazing. And I, I thanked him first in the credits because they were just such a, you know, emotionally such a, a meaningful part of, of me being able to make this film. Um, so, so Brooke and Sandy and his kids were just really, really great. Um, but um, the um, sorry, I lost my train of thought a little bit. Um, That's all right. It's, the show's rarely so, on the tracks. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what we're saying about bring, bringing it over here? Um, I can't remember where I was going to go with that. This is a really good beer, by the way. <laughs> um, that uh, is that Bearwolf. 
Uh, yes. Beer yeah, Wolf, I like. Wolf, they're out of Amesbury. Country. We've worked with them a few times. Yeah. Uh, Great brewery. We we went up there one time, and uh, you know we were like packing up. We were finished up the event, and they're like, "Hang on, hang on, hang on." I'm like, "What?" And they hand me a case of beer. I'm like, "Uh, you want me to take a case of beer?" They're like, "No, no, no. They're, they're short pours." Yeah. They're like, so we can't sell them. It's whatever. Like as they were filling yeah. the ca- the cans, like you get to a point where like whatever keg they were filling from would run out, and you get like three quarters of a beer in a can so it was just this entire case of like somewhere between half and three quarter full cans and like just take them Hmm. i'm like all right but yeah good good bunch of guys there yeah if if we have a few more beers and a couple shots of something i can give you drunk history on john paul jones and (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) that'll be fun yeah um so um anyway that that motherfucker you know he, he didn't get his command of, uh, of an American uh, tall ship that he wanted. They commissioned six tall ships. Yeah. Okay? And um, he didn't get command of one, and he was kind of pissed and ended up deciding to go work for the Russian Navy after a while. Oh, really? Yeah. So he sailed for the Russians. They um, they paid him a lot. Uh, I think it was Catherine, Queen Catherine. Um, and she... Uh, they paid him a lot of money, and he he had like rights to, um, you know, to to keep some of the booty from. Uh, the, oh, so the he was like a privateer kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, he was oh, more. He wow. was a little bit mercenary. Wow. You know, they they like to say he's the father of the American Navy, but that that motherfucker was a capitalist, and um, you know, he ended up um, the rose-colored glasses of history, right? You know? Right, and and he he didn't it didn't really go well for him there either. He ended up resigning in scandal. Uh, something about him having an affair with a young woman, a very young woman. Yeah, and he ended up dying in France as a pauper. He he was completely penniless, and uh, his body was there for many years before the, somebody said, "Hey, this is John Paul Jones. He's the father of American Navy," as they, you know, now dubbed him. And they they decided to exhume the body and brought him back to America. And now he's in a tomb, enshrined at the United States Naval Academy. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's and funny. people have no idea that he was basically like available to the highest bidder. Yeah. And yeah, he did some really cool stuff, like during the. Um, uh, he he turned the um, the British against the the War of eighteen twelve by literally attacking the British coast and capturing somebody who was I don't know princess or duchess or something I don't care about royalty somebody who had some pretense yeah. of divine uh, anointment yeah you know so he captures the, the, the one of these people Duke Earl of such and such yeah he, he <laughs> made he made that war unpopular on the British homeland and it ended shortly afterward so he did some very very good things for the united states but he was like motherfuckers i wanted my tall ship that's really interesting (laughs) and And, and i love so so much of your movie spoke to me mm. because i feel like part of this lifestyle that you're living is because you get to go to these places you know you're here in plymouth yeah, you this know, is a fantastic you, town, by the way. Everybody should come to Plymouth. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows about Plymouth Rock, and I, I saw it. It's real. Um, it's, yeah. But, but it's, actually, <laughs> it's actually a really beautiful town, and, and I think it's a great place for people to come uh, yeah. for, for a few days. It, it is. So many people I talk to, and they're like, oh, Plymouth Rock. I'm like, yeah, I mean, see it. Yeah. And it's unimpressive. It's more impressive when you learn some of the history about it. Um. But this town is really more like food central and and arts and this really great bands around here. Hmm. 
Like, um, one of my favorite stories, I was, uh, there's this, um, this bar up on Main Street called Main Street, and it is kind of known for being the bar that every 21-year-old goes to just get, like, completely sloppy. And I was there one night because a friend of mine was playing, and I went with another friend, and he had a, a guitarist stop by. And I can hear the table behind me and be like, that guy's really, really good. Like, he could be, like, if he, you know, he could be, like, in a band. Like, he's top-notch. I'm like, yeah, he tours the country. Like, he's in this band called The Elevators, and, like, he happened to be home. So he, you know, dropped in, played a local set in this bar, and, like, yeah, he's played Red Rock and, that's cool. you know, Costa Rica, and they tour all over the place. And it's just, like, that. Yeah, that's the type of talent that you can see just hanging out in the local dump bar. Yeah. And, uh, well, so... I, I mentioned before that I, I wasn't really planning on being in Plymouth today. It was kind of an accident, right? Right, right. Uh, I would say an incident more than an accident. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I was sailing out of Boston. Yeah. Okay, and, and I'm on the boat that I restored in the movie, mm-hmm. the, the KGB, which, by the way, is my mom's initials. Okay, I was going to so, ask about that because yeah, yeah, you like, painted like the sickle and the hammer, and I'm like... It's a family joke. Okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a family joke. Like, there's that. Like, yeah. it's my mom's initials, but it's also like... The actual KGB is interesting to me because, like, I wrote a screenplay about them years ago, but uh, how they tried to kill Ukraine's founding father. That was nine years ago, uh, before they poignant took now, Crimea. Yeah. yeah, before they took Crimea, yeah. and um, and and I haven't been able to sell that script for some reason. Um, anyway, um, so the I'm on the boat and I'm, I'm I decide that I need to get it to Baltimore because my my ex and my son are no longer living in Boston. She got a job in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. and instead of like going to get an apartment in dc or baltimore i'm just like well you have an apartment I'm, it moves. I'm just yeah. gonna i'm just gonna sail south you know uh, that's one of the amazing things about it like you can you can relocate the boat and still be at home but it doesn't feel you can experience everything anew when yeah. you're moving the boat to a new place and i think the van life people get this um, they probably get it more often than they want because they have to move. They're being forced out of somewhere, some yeah. parking lot, like you said. But with liveaboards, it's more long-term. Like, you set up a, a year-long lease here or a multi-year lease here. And what I actually did was I bought a boat slip in Baltimore for a very reasonable price. And I, I'm moving my boat down there to the Inner Harbor, which is a fantastic neighborhood. And um, I'll be able to, to drive to see my son over in Washington, D.C. very easily. So um, I set out from Boston a couple of weeks ago, and it was a foggy, foggy morning, maybe 200 yards of visibility. And I went to the fuel dock to gas up, and the guy at the fuel dock said, man, you got to be fucking crazy to go out in weather like this. And I was looking around thinking, I, I drove submarines before. Like, I've had worse visibility yeah. than this. <laughs> 200 yards is okay for a little boat. And um, I was fine with it. So I, I went out anyway, and um, I drove past the Boston Harbor Islands. And the, when I got out into the ocean chop and the boat started rocking like 15, 20 degrees either side, um, I started having engine trouble. They started stalling out, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And eventually I stalled out entirely, and I couldn't get the engines running. And I realized that there was some sort of gunk in my fuel. Um the new fuels oh yeah the new the new fuels that we put in at the dock had ethanol in it and my my old fuel tanks had never seen that before they had um 
you know, it used to be like 93 octane leaded gasoline yep. only for this engine. So um, I realized what was happening was the the fuel, the ethanol was like washing the inside of the tanks and loosening up gunk that was in there. Oh, uh, so it's basically cleaning the tank that you didn't want to clean. Like <laughs> I tried to clean it, I yeah. drained it out and I rinsed it, but I didn't do a good enough job. So yeah. I realized that the engines were sucking up gunk from this fuel tank and and I needed to get towed in. So I called the you know uh, Boat US, yeah. which I have a membership with, and they towed me into Plymouth. Is that like AAA for cards? It's like or AAA, yeah. Boat Yes is fantastic. Yeah. And if you have a boat and you're going, if you're if you're going out at all, you need some sort of towing insurance. Yeah. Um, otherwise, <laughs> you're in big trouble because if somebody just like a privateer comes up and tows you, then the law of the sea allows them to claim half the value of your boat. So for real, that's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Like Admiralty law, if you're out at sea and somebody comes to rescue you, like they can claim. But if you have an insurance company like Boat US, then they they come out and rescue you. So Boat US rescued me, and they brought me in, put me on an anchor. Uh, excuse me, at a mooring ball, and I, I I thought I fixed the problem, and I set out again the next morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and no, <laughs> not so much. Um, you know, it turns out that it was a little more complicated than what I originally thought. And the weather was beautiful, so I said, you know what? I'll just drop anchor and work on it out at sea. Yeah. So I did. I dropped anchor like a mile east of Plymouth. And it was great for that day. But the next day, there was a weather advisory that I missed. And the weather got really nasty really fast. And I found myself caught in a gale. Yeah, where the winds were over forty miles per hour, and the waves were. <laughs> now, according to the guy in the movie, that's oh. not a storm. It's what do you that's say? true. In- interesting, exciting sailing. That's, that's exciting what he said. sailing, yeah. right? He's yeah, yeah. Um, and he said M- that Michael I, Barber yeah, said that I that was that. exciting sailing, right? Yeah. And and he's a he's a sailboat captain who's who's single handed across the Atlantic a few times, so he's a very experienced captain. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, it's different when you actually have propulsion and when you don't. And and I was stuck there with basically trying to repair um, an engine problem at anchor. And then this you know little gale comes through, and all of a sudden I'm out there with a, a 42-foot boat. is still a pretty good-sized boat, but when the seas are 10 to 12 feet high, that's a different story. Yeah. I mean, from 100 yards away, you couldn't even see the boat oh, under the swells, yeah. right? So, yeah. Um, I was out there for about 15 hours in this gale, and about 12 hours into it, I, I called the Coast Guard and said, I, I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, only time in my life I've ever been pulled off a vessel yeah. because they were, they were concerned about my safety. And they said to me, you know, do you want us to remove you from the vessel? And I said, not yet, but if it gets any worse, I'm afraid that... I'm going to be in trouble. I almost put my head through a window. Yeah. And I thought, well, if, if I had done that, if I had slipped a little bit and broken the window with my forehead, I could be bleeding and unconscious on the deck, and they wouldn't even right. be able to approach me right yeah. now. They wouldn't even be able to get on the boat because it was bouncing around so much. And that's what I'm talking about. I was like, all, yeah, all, everyone right. on that so, movie we had like, and that's the time I almost died. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I've this year alone, I've sailed 20,000 miles. 
I went from Virginia to Kuwait in September. Uh, that's a 10,000 mile voyage wow. right there. And before that, I'd sailed many. Then not on this boat. Not on this boat. Yeah, no, yeah. no. I, okay. That was on a commercial cargo ship, yeah. a 600 foot ship. And then before that, I, I'd worked on a cargo ship moving between Israel, Egypt, and Turkey. And, and I made 15 trips back and forth shuttling cargo to yeah. the Suez Canal. So, uh, you know, I, I sail all the time. And, and I spend 99% of my life on the water. But um, this was actually the first time I'd ever had to abandon ship, so to speak. Yeah. When um, the Plymouth Harbor Master came to uh, to pull me off my boat. And th- those guys did a great job. They w- were very professional. Um, and, yeah, they, they pulled me out of a pretty hairy situation. And then Boat US went back a few hours later. And, and um, George and Ryan, uh, who were driving, managed to... Um, save my boat and even the anchor oh <laughs> the, yeah the anchor we had to we had to cut it loose um and i, I tied a buoy on the end of it a, a floater on the end of it so that we could go back and find it later and we found it oh so that's awesome there was basically um basically no damage i, I lost a teacup that got broken i, I suppose that's acceptable yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like i thought i could have died so yeah. you know i was pretty happy um you know, coming out of that and the boat was, um, it, it's a very strong boat, steel-hulled, and it, it's very well built, so it, it weathered the storm. And, you know, now, um, I guess the situation now for me is that, you know, even though I'm an experienced sailor, I, I'm single-handing it. Right. You know, I'm the only guy on this boat right now trying to drive it for on a 400-mile trip. And that's, um, you know, some people might think that's crazy, to me, it's like a matter of managing the risk. And if I break it down into bites that I can digest, then it's something that's doable and safe. Yeah. Well, it's just like if you're driving to Florida. You know, you have to know when to pull over and yeah. get a hotel room to, like, yeah, take, I, spend the night. Or, like, it, I don't know what the comparative... Yeah, it's, um... I don't know, like... Last time I, I drove across Florida a few times when I was making this movie, and um, there's some rest stops in Florida where they've got these signs that are like "Beware of snakes." Oh okay. like yeah, yeah. Like especially when you go across Alligator Alley. Yeah. I think your sunglasses are right behind you. No thanks. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm actually just going to shut this. Oh sure. Um. So. I think it's an alligator alley where they they have these signs saying like beware of the snakes at the rest stops in Florida. So uh, it's like yeah, you can't you can't like go sit out on the park bench and take a nap there because yeah. you might get bitten by some you know random reptile. Um, I don't know if there's I don't know if it compares directly to the boat. Like the the, the thing with the the thing with boating is that um, the ocean is one of those really scary places you know i sometimes ask people like do you have any idea how many people have died out there oh lots <laughs> yeah, lots. No, no, yeah nobody really knows though how yeah. many because it's it's a fucking ton yeah you know throughout history so many people have, have died out on the water and even so and i think we have this misconception that like oh that was back then 
Yeah, you right. know, but no, like who we, was that football player or baseball player who died last year from oh, a yeah. boating accident? Right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we just uh, we just did a, a episode of one of our other shows about the uh, is it the Andrea Dory, the the fishing boat that went into the perfect storm did you hear about how william shatner just went to space recently yeah. and he said he looked out the window at planet earth and he said wow there's life and everything around it was death that's how he described the mm-hmm. vacuum of space it was just not life and i've thought about things in that sense for a long time every time i go out to sea on a cargo ship especially if i'm walking across the deck at night and nobody else is out there um if you go overboard, I, I look at the railing when would and they think, know? I yeah. think on this side I'm alive, and if I fall over that railing, I'm dead. Yeah, because I would be gone from hypothermia long before they ever even realized that I was missing from the ship. So those are, you know, those are realities that we face when we're out at sea, especially when we're alone mm-hmm. or um, or just isolated in some context. Um, so. Uh, yeah, you have to be, you know, respectful of of those realities. But um, do you ever see yourself returning to a quote unquote normal life? <laughs> I don't. I don't even. I don't know if I could ever go back to um, living just in an apartment or a house. Yeah, I, I think. Um, so there are a couple things that I want to say about that. One is that. As someone who drives cargo ships and research ships and yachts for a living, um, I'm used to traveling to my workplace, spending a few months there, and then coming home for a few months of vacation. And a professional sailor typically works six months a year and then has six months of paid time off. Um, So the idea of of having a workplace that's decoupled from my home... Mm -hmm is not something new to me. A lot of people have discovered this in the last couple of years because of COVID. They realize now I can, you know, commute by zoom or I can, I can have, you know, collaborations with other people without having to show up at the office. To me, um, I haven't had an office for, for many years now. Yeah. And I love it. I never want an office job. Um, but on the side of, uh, my living space, my home, I have such a different conception of what home is now that, I think it would be very difficult for me to um, buy into the um, you know the system that the most folks have just taken for granted and go get an apartment somewhere. I, I don't think I could do it, especially with apartments. I I think that um, you know as a working class guy, I think that the only way people can get ahead is through ownership, mm-hmm. and um, I would rather own a tiny house or rather build something like a container house or, or something like that than, than go rent from anyone. Yeah. Um, I think it's the only way we can get ahead as working class people. And with this situation, I paid $8,000 for this boat. That's <laughs> which, half of what I, which less is than half what I paid for my car. You're looking around and yeah. like, it's, it's got like mid-century modern styled mahogany custom furniture yeah. in here. Like it's, you know, and every now that everything functions, it's like, are you, are you kidding me? Like you paid that much for this is a, an incredible deal. Now I had to put a lot more, I had to put tens of thousands into it, but we're still talking about like less than fifty thousand dollars for me to own everything on this boat, and and people will spend four hundred thousand dollars on a house and still put tens of thousand dollars into yeah, it. Yeah, you know? right. So 
to me, it's it's really about um, giving myself some freedom to make choices. And when you're not, I'm not house poor anymore. I yeah. used to be house poor when I had a condo and I was paying, you know, as much as I could afford on my mortgage. Mm-hmm. But I'm not anymore. Uh, I have a lot of freedom to do things that I want, including travel or you know working on film production. In this case, I put a lot of money into you know producing this film. So um, that sort of thing would not have been possible if I had been kind of chained to the typical uh, systematic way of living, which is, you know, buy a new car with a five-year payment plan, yep. you know, get that fully insured, um, rent a, an apartment, get renter's insurance, like all of these other things that just add up and add up and add up. And I, I feel... I feel like I'm looking at that system from the outside and going, wow, I don't, I don't regret getting out of it. I don't regret breaking away. Yeah. Yeah. I was working an office job when COVID hit and I got furloughed. And, and since then I've just done my own thing and it's, it's, it's that weird, like I used to be like, okay, I am at work yeah. and I am at home. Yeah. And now it's like, I, it's so hard to separate like people like oh you need time off you need time off and i'm like yeah but my job sometimes is going to hang out at a brewery and watching a comedy show that i put together and that doesn't feel like work right i mean yeah i stress about it if we don't have enough ticket sales and whatever but it's i find it sometimes difficult to explain my lifestyle to other people especially them like what do you do for a living yeah so like do you have that same thing when people are like oh where do you live and you're like i mean <laughs> yeah on a boat <laughs> i live in a pineapple under the sea yeah. right? I, mean, th- yeah. I might as well say that yeah. because i get the same damn response like you do what yeah and, and most people are actually quite similar in their response they say oh i heard of someone who's done that before but i've never actually met anyone and that was that was my feeling about it when i thought about this first i'd heard of people doing it but um i had no first-hand knowledge so i hope that this film can correct that um that that deficiency in the public's knowledge about what it means to live aboard a boat that it is a legitimate lifestyle that when it's done correctly by the book that these people are are um capable and they're conscientious they protect each other they protect the environment they do things in a way that is that is legal and permissible Mm -hmm. and i hope that uh, in places like new york city where liveaboards haven't really been allowed except for one little marina on the west river um on the hudson river um i think that places like new york city should take note and and say that this is a legitimate lifestyle and we should encourage people to do this noting that there are rights and responsibilities in this different way of life when does the movie officially come out because i know it's not officially out but you've shown it at some film festival so it's been it's been at several film festivals over the last year um it was nominated for best documentary at the swedish international film festival um, won an honorable mention at a festival in Paris at the Around Film Festival. Um, it won Best Documentary at the San Diego Art Film Festival, and it's been shown in many other places. I think, I think the folks in in Europe are interested in it because it's a film that shows an interesting way of life all across America. Mm-hmm. I cover every American coast, geographically speaking, 
including Hawaii, Alaska, the West Coast, and that's PNW and like further south by yep. San Diego and LA. Um, then the Gulf Coast, including like Galveston and New Orleans, and then over to the East Coast from from Florida to Baltimore to Boston and New York, you know, all the way up. So um, I think there's sort of a panoramic view of America, and that's very interesting to people from outside of America who are considering alternative ways of life. Maybe they're they're coming here from a country where their money doesn't go so far, mm-hmm. and they'd like to know how to live on a budget, um, live a little bit below the radar. That's a great way to do it. Yeah. And um, I think in the United States, people are, are interested because um, we've already been sort of enamored with the van life and the tiny house thing. And frankly, I think that the liveaboard lifestyle is in the same vein but it kind of kicks it up a notch in terms of the elegance and the, the beauty that is attainable yeah through this um this incredible lifestyle the ones are coming out <laughs> so yeah yeah so okay so yeah i was talking yeah. about the festivals and blah 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 um it, it's um more so i know when we can put this yeah, out. it's coming out in the spring um, okay but but i have to I'm, I'm finalizing contracts right now with the musicians um I have music. It's got from, great music in it. Thank you. Um, so the music was very important to uh, the way that I um, edited the film. I had the music in mind before I even started filming. Yeah. And the is there is it a cellist or? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the the cellist who performs most of the music is Eric Friedlander, and he um, he's actually the son of uh, Lee Friedlander the social documentary photographer who Mm -hmm. was quite famous in the mid century. And, um, what, what he did was, uh, Lee Freelander took his family on an expedition around America in an airstream when he was photographing America. Yeah. And that album that, um, that I use as sort of a de facto soundtrack is called block ice and propane. And it's basically a solo cello where Eric Freelander is, kind of recounting that childhood adventure that his dad took him on across America to, to photograph everything. And I felt like there were a lot of um, analogies to be drawn between that story that he told sonically mm-hmm. and the adventure that I was going on. It was an odyssey in, in a, a sense of, of sailing around the world and trying to find a way back home yeah. to be closer to my son. And, and I felt like um, Eric's adventure was also sort of an odyssey, um, traveling around America to, to explore uh, its essence. And I felt like he was incredibly expressive and able to tell uh, a strong narrative with that single instrument. He's just a really impressive artist. And the part that blew me away was um, there was a young lady that was talking about her brush with death <laughs> and um, where she ended up uh, falling out of a dinghy yes. and, and slicing her foot open and you could see she was really upset by it and right. and the, the cello music there was like you, you felt it right like, for sure it was, just, it was very like uneasy and disconcerting and yeah, yeah it was and great. that was I think that one was called uh, cold chicken I think is what that that track was called but Megan Sample's story about falling overboard in her dinghy and her, her boyfriend had turned off the kill switch normally a small boat's supposed to have a kill switch <laughs> with, a, with a lanyard on it and, and then I loved how you're like yeah. they're not together anymore <laughs> yeah. so they 
she if you fall over on a small boat like a dinghy it's supposed to have uh, this thing that pulls the key out of the ignition yeah. and boom it shuts off the the motor so that the boat doesn't drive away or in her case she she managed to catch the boat she managed to grab on and, and hold on to it but then when she was climbing back in the motor was still turning and it chopped up her foot yeah, and, yeah. and she could have you know she, she got a boat death, yeah. and could have bled to death yeah it was really a a, a nasty injury so she was quite lucky to have caught herself because the boat would have driven away and she was in the ocean swell yeah so she could have drowned first of all but um uh you know she when she got back in and realized that the propeller had chopped up her foot and was squirting blood all over the boat um yeah that was that must have been really horrifying and, and she was pretty traumatized even during the interview you could tell that that recounting that story was um was a very brave act and i was very grateful for um for megan's bravery in telling this story because i think it helps um it helps people to appreciate the risks mm-hmm. and also to um you know just from a sense of, of of women's empowerment she had an intuition that something wasn't you know right about that and yeah and and now she she's a big advocate of boater safety and um i think that she's not you know one who's going to take things for granted when her boyfriend tells her that this is how things are supposed to go like she realizes that you have to look out for yourself and you have to to be smart and use and use not just common sense but you have to think things through when you're going out on the water and and you have to make sure that you're doing everything you can to keep yourself safe because it is dangerous at times so um you know megan's um megan's story was fantastic um and and the the soundtrack yeah I had a little bit of, um, you know, creative tension with trying to push it, you know, make it a little bit louder, a little bit more intense, you know, because yeah. I wanted people to feel uncomfortable. Uh, and it worked for me. So excellent <laughs> work because it, it definitely, it, it's, it's a hard thing to do, I think, to kind of like get that kind of tension from someone just telling a story. You yeah. know, it's one thing when you have a production budget and you can recreate and the special effects and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But just for someone telling this story that is essentially, I fell out of a boat and cut my foot. Right. But to really feel that that's, that's there, you felt the danger and. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the amazing thing about Eric Freelander's album is that um, he managed to go through this very similar range of emotions in his story when when he was a child traveling across America with his father and I felt like I want to know uh, what his I, issue is with cold chicken now <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I don't know uh, but there it was like I I could imagine his situation but the music also worked incredibly well for conveying the emotions yeah. that I wanted to convey throughout this film uh i i um i understood his album i listened to it many times before i started editing this film and then when i decided that i wanted to use that kind of folksy um narrative and and the cello is a deliberate choice too Mm -hmm. um this boat that i'm on right now that we're sitting on is kind of a cello of a boat it's a little bit big but it's not ungainly yeah uh and it's capable of of being beautiful and elegant and i think that's a an appropriate instrument to convey uh what it's like and and you know as i said i'm I'm single-handing it down the coast right now and that's a solo act so uh 
these things were all um, important in constructing a sonic metaphor mm-hmm. for me in, in the film. And, and I used that from the beginning to shape the narrative. And the music, in a very meaningful way, leads the emotions and the narrative. Do you often bring additional crew on to, like... No. 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 No, it's just because <laughs> you're like, oh, you know, I'm soloing it down. I'm like, oh, is there ever, like... Uh, no, so... It, but it's unusual to solo, um, yeah. you know, to single-hand a boat this size. I think I think it would be reasonable for me to take two extra people. So being able to do it by myself... That would make is, this seem less comfortable. <laughs> yeah. I, I, let me put it this way. Yeah. Um, I have to be very careful about the risks that I manage, and when I when I'm planning out the rest of this voyage, mm-hmm. I have to take it in small pieces. Yeah, I, I am not going to be pushing myself any single day or in in any way. When it comes to any risk with weather, I'm going to hold off for a day or two. Uh, if there's any risk with, I don't know if I can make it that far in a day before dark, I'm going to hold off. I'm, I'll break it down into two trips and maybe go to anchor somewhere at a safe harbor or uh, maybe maybe come into a marina at a yeah. safe harbor marina uh, so it's just not I would say that for, for most people who haven't spent a lot of time sailing you should not even consider single handing something it's yeah. it's dangerous um, but for, for me I, I think it's just a matter of managing the risk with um what I know how to do, and and my my boat has a lot of backup systems. I've got two engines. I've got parts for pretty much everything. I could rebuild my engines out at sea if I need to, mm-hmm. um, and I have the tools for that. But you know, most people aren't in that kind of situation where they're they're at that level of preparedness, yeah, or or knowledge. Well, as we're closing this out, let me ask: Is there any anything from quote unquote normal life that you miss? Yeah, I I wish I had a cat. You know, I'm a cat person. Okay. Uh, but I feel like a lot of those people did have pets. Yeah, they, they did. But um, I feel like um, my space probably isn't big enough for a cat. Yeah. And I know a couple of those folks. I've gotten to know some of their cats uh, over the years. And I think the cats go a little bit crazy. Yeah. They like to be able to walk the docks. But not all the marinas will tolerate that. Yeah. Um, one time, one of the cats that I knew... Um, became a stowaway on on another vessel that that went out to oh, sea wow. so you know they got to the next port and said where the hell did this cat from come from you know like it's yeah so having um you know having pets is like something that i, I kind of miss yeah i'd really the, like the one that cat. i found confusing is the dogs i'm like how do you when you're out how yeah do you walk the dog yeah so like I mean, w- with megan she had that enormous dog but a year after th- that interview the dog was relocated rehomed yeah i guess is the word they would use it was yeah. rehomed to a farm so that it had the space to run you can't keep a big dog that, on that's a boat. what they tell people when their dogs die rehomed? <laughs> no that like, like oh they're on a farm where they can run you know, oh oh really you never heard that yeah oh. like when people like are little and their dogs pass away they'd be like oh they they're on a farm upstate where they can run you've never no mine always got run over by cars <laughs> so <laughs> okay yeah i guess yeah. i i guess i was one of those people who just faced reality yeah no um, i just think that's like the stereotypical like parent answer yeah like, maybe yeah. maybe no I, I i would always bury the corpses after they were run over yeah. um so I, I don't know maybe that's one of the things about boaters is that um <laughs> you can't bullshit the ocean yeah you know it's going to do what it's going to do to you 
and you have to be either ready or face the consequences. So, <laughs> more people should learn to be that way in life. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a good skill. Yeah. It's a valuable skill. It's awesome. Well, I want to say thank you, man, for having me on on the KGB. This is an awesome boat. Um, it's very <laughs> thank you. very cool. Thank you. And uh, the, the total fluke that this even happened. Like you just happened into the beer cellar and. Tatum happened to tell me about you, and I'm like, hook a brother up with an interview. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad she introduced us. This has been a lot yeah. of fun. So uh, best of luck with the movie, and we'll, we're going to hold off on putting this out until it's closer to release date. And, right. um, you know, hopefully it'll be on Amazon Prime or yeah, wherever. I think I'm, I'm thinking that it's probably going to be on uh, Apple and Amazon. And yeah. Amazon is uh, curating their content right now. So they have a special longer process for deciding whether or not they want to sell your stuff. But as long as they meet technical specifications, it'll be available on Apple. Yeah. Cool. Awesome, yeah. man. Thanks so much. All right. And uh, for our listeners, we'll see you guys next week. And thanks for checking out the show today, listeners. Uh, if you enjoyed the content today, you can go over to patreon.com slash to support the show. You can join over there for just a few dollars a month and help us provide this fun content that you just checked out. You can also email us at inebriart.com with your questions, complaints, and concerns, or you can find us on all social medias at inebriart or at inebriart6 on Instagram. And also don't forget to check out our other shows, Bar Talk Podcast, Old Colony Cast, Inebriart, and all the other shows on the Inebriart Network, which you can find at inebriart.com. Thanks again for listening.